Davis Guggenheim is sitting on a couch in a hotel room in Santa Monica with Al Gore. Davis is in the last stretch of production for his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Where most documentaries take a year and a half or more, this one was scheduled to finish in just five months. And it was unconventional. Essentially, a documentary built around a slide deck. This film would not only be hugely important for Davis's career, but if done right, it would change the way the public thinks about the planet. But Davis hit a massive snag. Every time he sat down with Al Gore, the interviews didn't go very well. It was hard to establish that rapport. He's had a public life. He ran for president three times. He was a vice president for eight years. And here's a guy who's been only punished for saying the wrong thing. In interviews, Gore would be guarded, rehearsed, but then he would invite Davis out to dinner. And he'd just be laughing and he'd be warm and he'd be bawdy. And I realized that like he had learned over the course of his career to be so critical of what he's going to say. So Davis has one last chance to get Gore to open up, to get Gore to trust him. They sit down on the couch. It's summer, and the sun is streaming in through the windows. Davis decides not to record video of the interview. Instead, he has a sound engineer set up a mic and then leave. And then, over the course of several hours... Another side of him came out because there was no camera there. That interview is really the emotional spine of that movie. I'm Damian Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. With an inconvenient truth, Davis Guggenheim made Al Gore's slideshow about climate change into a massive, conversation-changing success that won him an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The New York Times critic A.O. Scott wrote about watching Gore's affecting slides. I can't think of another movie in which the display of a graph elicited gasps of horror. Which was, of course, the point. Since then, Davis has directed documentaries about the US public education system, Malala, U2, Bill Gates, and Barack Obama. He shared intimate stories about the people whose lives and work shape our society and the systems that hold us back. His newest venture is Concordia Studio. Launched in 2020, Concordia is already, one year in, a documentary powerhouse. Concordia worked with Questlove on his Summer of Soul documentary, and the studio's film Time was shortlisted for an Oscar. Davis, I'm so glad you could join us today. Yeah, you've made it easy. I want to start with um, your career, because going back through IMDb, there was a very different Davis, I think, before Inconvenient Truth appeared. You have something like 20 years' experience doing a range of different films from Sex Lies and Videotape, a classic 80s movie, if ever there was one, to Deadwood. On Sex Lies and Videotape, I was uh, like an assistant. 
that was actually the first film I got to see made, but I was like a, a kid out of college. <laughs> I got to see Steven Soderbergh make his first film. What What was the trigger that suddenly sent you off to participant media and Inconvenient Truth? My father made documentary films. And so when I moved to L.A. after college, I was determined to never make a documentary. Oh, my God. I drove my Volkswagen Jetta to L.A. and I was going to become, in my mind, a Hollywood director. And uh, my father was such a wonderful father and a great filmmaker. It was like I could never repeat what he had done. And I had to make my own way. But careful what you wish for. And actually, the writer of Deadwood, David Milch, always said, the best way to make God laugh is to tell him your plans. Yeah. And is your dad still alive? No, he passed away about 15 years ago. Wow. He won four Academy Awards and was nominated 11 or 12 times and made these great social justice documentaries. And, and he still sits on my shoulder. Like He was a wonderful filmmaker of a completely different era. The way documentaries are made, the way they're seen, the way they're viewed have completely changed. The fundamentals that he taught me are still the same. Did your dad see Inconvenient Truth? No. What would he have thought of it? Oh, it would have blown his mind. I'm sorry he didn't see it. I made one documentary before that called um, The First Year. So to go even further back, I became a television director. I did a lot of different shows like Deadwood, but before that, NYPD Blue and ER. They were not my shows. I was a visiting director, so I was a gun for hire. What I really wanted to do was to direct a movie. And I found the script and developed it and bought it and took it to Warner Brothers, the script for the movie Training Day. To me, it was like a modern-day French connection. That was going to be my my ticket to becoming a great director. And um, to make a very long story short, Warner Brothers bought it. And we argued over who the lead should be. And I fought for Denzel Washington. They wanted white guy after white guy after white guy. And I wanted Denzel Washington. And we sent it to him with an offer. And he loved it and then fired me. Wow. And I can laugh about it now, but it was devastating. Just for us novices, how could he fire you? Well, it happens in Hollywood all the time that unless you have power. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I sold the rights to Warner Brothers. So they had the rights. So if I hadn't sold them, I wouldn't have gotten the movie made. But if I hadn't sold them, he couldn't have fired me. And for about five years, it was the defining moment in my life. And it was sort of wore me down. And I was turned into a very dark, pessimistic place. But in the middle of that, I decided to make a movie about first-year teachers in Los Angeles. And that was a documentary called The First Year. Yeah. So I followed five teachers who had never taught before. And I filmed a lot of it by myself. And that became my first movie. And I started to love making documentaries. And I loved that the world I was in was rich and meaningful and purposeful in a way that I hadn't felt in some of my experiences in television and Hollywood. I just want to try to get onto Inconvenient Truth. And I want to know the process. Yeah. 
it's such an abstract film. If I was to write it down, I can only imagine the concept. I want to take basically this PowerPoint presentation with Al Gore and turn it into a film. No offense, but it must be one of the least compelling uh, propositions I think anyone could have seen on paper. But in reality, it was, I mean, fantastic. It's not offensive at all. I think we all felt that way. And in fact, when these producers, Laurie David and Lawrence Bender, Lawrence Bender produced Pulp Fiction. Laurie David was an activist and she was married to Larry David at the time. And they said, we wanted this film about climate change. I'm like, okay, I'm interested in that. And, and it's with Al Gore. I'm like, hmm, a film about a politician. I'm not sure. There was still some bitterness around the election, even among the left. And then it was like this slideshow. And I was like, I don't know. That's th- Those are not the ingredients for a great documentary. So I felt that way too. Yeah. And then Laurie, to her credit, invited me to a luncheon at the Beverly Hilton. And it was uh, in the middle of the day, you know, 20 round tables and um, a podium. And Al had his laptop out. And the slides weren't the way you see them in the movie. The slides were sort of cobbled together on his laptop. And after about five minutes, I'm like, oh, you know, how how can I get out of here? (laughs) But then as he started to make that argument, I started to lean in more. And by the end, I was like, wow, this is, this guy's explained something to me that I've never truly understood. Right. And I left that lunch saying, I have to make this movie. But we all felt like, well, you have to make this movie, but how do you make this movie? And even when the film was finished, we got into Sundance, I think because Al Gore was in it and because people felt like this is something that was important. Right. Someone knew the head of Warner Brothers. And so the week before Sundance, we took the film and we went into a, one of these fancy Warner Brothers screening rooms. And the head of Warner Brothers was there. His six lieutenants were there. And we sat down and watched the movie with Al Gore. And halfway through the movie, the executive next to me was snoring. (laughs) And the movie ends, and the executives go off to the other side of the room, and they huddle for like 20 minutes. And they come back, and they're, they're clearly taken by Al Gore, and they want to be nice to this guy, and... We want to impress this guy. So they said, well, we, we've thought about this and we don't believe anyone will pay a babysitter to go see this. And we also don't think anyone would buy a ticket to this. But we think that what you're doing is really important. So we're going to offer you 1,000 DVDs <laughs> that you can give to science teachers. They, in their own minds... They're, they're saying what you're saying by your in your question. The ingredients in this movie don't make sense. Yeah. And you couldn't argue, right? They agreed, and they're like, if a thousand science teachers had this, that would be a valuable thing for the world, and then we've impressed the vice president. Because he couldn't afford a thousand DVDs himself. Someone could have. But like, there are studios, so they could just, <laughs> you know, sure. write it off. But And then we went to a guy who was a guru in independent film sales. He was a one of the big talent agencies, and we asked him to see it. And he said, you have no theatrical potential at all. This film will never sell. And Diane Wireman, who's famous nonfiction executive, 
uh, who was a participant at the time, uh, she just passed away and said, screw them, just wait till Sundance. And we took the film to Sundance and it played so well. And Paramount bought it that night and the movie did really well. I'm proud of the filmmaking in it. I think the whole team did some important things that elevated it. In the end, it was Al Gore's ability to take something which it was either for some people controversial, meaning some people still thought climate change was a hoax, or it was at least still dispute about whether it was real, and to other people's just too complex. And he figured out how to do that. He had done the really hard work. And then what we did was to create sort of a personal narrative that wove inside of that. I think the greatest thing that you did was actually dare to make it and dare to make it in the form that you made it because it could have so easily taken another form which would have been a more standardized format that I don't think people would have received in the same way. And I think timing-wise, you were probably there around the same time, maybe before TED. And I'm guessing that you know this ability to present at this level and pre- present so convincingly was relatively novel your risk-taking and timing was everything. Yeah. Our first day of shooting for that movie was supposed to be in Louisiana to show the threat of sea level rise. And we had our plane tickets. And then my producer, Leslie Chilcott, said, we can't go because there's this threat of a hurricane coming. It's called Hurricane Katrina. And that became sort of the framing of the movie. George Bush was... His presidency was falling apart. His response to Katrina, his, he had just done Mission Accomplished. Right. There was an executive who saw the film before that Sundance who insisted on watching it. I sat next to him and we watched the film. The lights came up. And I said, what do you think? And he said, you have a feathered fish. He was a Hollywood executive, so he'd worked on movies and not documentaries. And so I said, what's a feathered fish? And he says, well, it doesn't swim and it doesn't fly. And this was someone who worked for the company that made the movie. So there's, there's a lot of good craft in that movie that I'm proud of. Yeah. We showed Al in a different way. We humanized him. We, we attached his personal narrative, which is a guy who lost the 2000 election and struggled to tell this story. And he says, I've been trying to tell this story and I feel like I failed. And so the movie is about him trying to tell the story. But there was also a sequence of events that the world was ready to see this issue for the first time. So post making that film, I can imagine that your phone was ringing off the hook to make other similar documentaries. Yeah, I had a friend who was like, you should just stop making movies because Inconvenient Truth is going to be in your tombstone. No one's going to care about anything else after that. That's obviously not true. The next film I made was about the electric guitar. It was a documentary called It Might Get Loud. Oh, yeah. It went a completely different direction. Was that just a bit of reset? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I didn't want to, like, I definitely got pitched, do the inconvenient truth for cancer. You know, do the inconvenient truth for one, two, three, four. Um, I think people... misunderstood what the ingredients for success were. It sometimes takes me three or four years to find 
a movie just because it's all about elements of a great narrative. And um, it's so hard to find that next movie. It's so hard to find where the pieces are all in place. So how do you go through that? Because from your career thereafter, you've interviewed some of the world's most influential people. Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Malala. How do you choose them? Because if the world is knocking on your door and you can pretty much choose to do a film or a documentary about anything, how do you decide? Well, in some cases, I would look back and say, oh, I was taken by the fame of that person. And I probably shouldn't have done that. In other cases, I mean, maybe this is too technical for your podcast, but when I was in college, people talked about storytelling as if it was sort of a a dirty, dark art. Especially in documentaries where you felt like, well, documentaries are journalism, they're fact. Um, and if you said, well, they're storytelling. And that, that was one of the gifts that my father gave me is that he always felt like a good documentary has good storytelling in it. Few people would have agreed with him, you know, that's the 70s, 80s. Now everyone talks about storytelling. But I still feel like few people actually know what that is. And uh, I feel I have a good nose. I'm a truffle pig for story. Yeah. The journey of my life is to figure out what good storytelling is and what the elements are. And So do you know what they are? Could you tell others this is what you need to have? The best way of understanding it this is stolen from an interview I heard with Aaron Sorkin, who said um, that every great story has a character that wants something, and the the stakes for that getting that need to be high. It actually doesn't matter what that is, and so the more they want something, the better, and the more obstacles, the better. So if I take um, my name is Malala. Break it down for me in that story. Her past story is the best example of that, which is here's a girl who just wants to go to school. And so you say, okay, that's a character that wants something. But now she wants to go to school because for her, in her culture, it's not just learning algebra. It's liberation. Okay, so now she wants something not just to get a skill. It's actually liberation. You can keep taking that further. You know, it, it means she's going to change every girl in her neighborhood, in her country, if she can and her father can create a school. So the stakes for that are visceral and they're real. And there's something all of us can understand. And then, okay, so what are her obstacles? Well, obviously the Taliban, but what else is it? It's her religion. That's an obstacle. It's the boys she encounters on the way to school. That is compelling. And it could easily be Nick Cage wanting his truffle pig back. <laughs> so there's another incredible movie out now called Pig. Have you seen it? <laughs> it's very odd, but it is so good. And Nick Cage, you meet him and he's in his cabin in the middle of nowhere and he and his pig go out and they hunt for truffles. He's off the grid. You can tell that he's run away from the real world. Anyway, one night he's asleep and they break into his house and someone steals his pig. Okay. Okay, so the whole movie is him trying to get his pig back. 
Okay, so I'll test my theory, right? Here's a character. What does he want? He wants his truffle pig back. Why? Because the truffle pig gets truffles. That's how he stays alive. But it's also his reason for living. You know, it's his companion. You know, so, and then the obstacles, you have to watch the movie to see the obstacles. But it's very hard, actually, to find a movie where those elements aren't in play. So, tell me, when you were making My Name is Malala, I would imagine making that movie, I would be in tears every day. I don't know that I'd be able to hold it together. Except that I've never met a more joyous family in my life. Really? And imagine I take a plane to England, another plane to Birmingham. I take a cab to their house and I knock on the door. And my hair was longer. My last name's Guggenheim. Here's a long-haired, unshaven Jewish guy knocking on the house of a Muslim family. So the cultural divide was so big. But very quickly, I just fell in love with them. And they fell in love with me. It was just a love affair. Yeah, Malala had been in recovery for a few months. I think she just had her 16th birthday. All of the family had just been airlifted from Pakistan, and they were plopped in the middle of Birmingham, England. And the mother was isolated. She didn't speak English. The dad, who used to run schools, had no job. And the brothers were fish out of water. So they had every reason to be bitter. And and Malala had been shot in the head and was recovering. You know, she still had um, a lot of physical therapy. But every day they just, they were full of laughter. The experience of making the movie with them was pure joy. But you didn't go and make another music documentary thereafter? I did. Okay. I did another movie called um, From the Sky Down, which is about the band U2 making Octoon Baby. It was on Showtime here. Didn't quite find an audience. It's, I think it's really good. It's small, but it's, it's really about a band that's falling apart and how they find their way back. Okay, well, add that to the list. I'd love to do more music movies if you have any ideas. Jeez, who wouldn't want to do a music video with you? Okay, or music film. I'm doing this podcast to get, get a job, Damien. <laughs> yeah. Another question I have, let's just lead on you too. I would imagine quite difficult people to work with, as in they know what they want. They've been around, they've seen a lot. How do you even know where to start when you're tackling such a well-known subject? Well, there's two pieces to that question. One is, how do you deal with someone who's so famous and powerful, and will they be authentic and open? Will they tell you something human and personal? That's the real challenge to me. The other part, which is that they're so well-known, is never a problem because ultimately people know the Wikipedia page of the person. The great thing about making movies, you just go deep and and hopefully the most personal way possible. That would be the other ingredient to a great film is like to just go right to the center of a person that is rare that most stories have been told that well. The advantage of it is like, I'm spending a year of my life thinking about nothing but Malala. One of the ingredients has to be that you are able to garner their trust, and you're obviously good at doing that. Well, sometimes I haven't done it as deeply as I'd like to. 
and sometimes I have. And is that down to you or them? That's a good question. In the end, it's, it is a relationship. There, there are some people who just don't want to open up, even if they're not rich and powerful. But rich and powerful people have less motive to open up. Right. Yeah, I mean, the good example of this is with Al Gore. I wouldn't call him rich. I'd call him powerful. But shooting an Inconvenient Truth, the interviews didn't go very well. And I went saying, you know, he just thinks I'm just another reporter. He's had a public life. He's, he was in the Congress. He was in the Senate. He ran for president three times. Um, he was a vice president for eight years. He says the wrong thing, and it, it gets published across the country, or, and maybe even hurts something he wants to get done. When we stopped the interview, we, like he'd invite me to dinner and— and he'd just be laughing, and he'd be warm, and he'd be bawdy. And I realized that he had learned over the course of his career to be so critical of what he's going to say. The breakthrough for that was I did an interview, an audio-only interview, ironically, in the presidential suite. The presidential suite at Shutters. Shutters? The hotel in Santa Monica. Okay. Yeah. And it was a beautiful summer day, and we're sitting on the couch together. And I set up the microphone, and the sound man left. And so I was push record. And we just started talking. And we talked and talked and talked and talked and wandered. I think that's what was nice about this interview or this conversation is, is that we're wandering a bit. And he opened up in a way which he never did before. And by the end, we were talking about things that he never wanted to talk about, the 2000 election and how heartbreaking that was. And at the end, we both sort of looked up because we were sort of in a, another space in our minds, and the sun had gone down. Oh, wow. And we were in a completely dark room. That interview is really the emotional spine of that movie. And what point in the, in the process was that? How far in? At the very end. It was a last thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so to bring it back to your question, that's the hardest part. It's hard for me to open up to somebody if someone says, you know, tell me about your marriage or tell me about your fears. Like, I'm not going to just talk about them. Right. My job is to help build trust with that person and put them in a space where people can feel truly open to be vulnerable. And they clearly do. I mean, you clearly have done a, a good job of doing it. I just want to skip forward to Concordia. So the way that I see Concordia again is you extending yourself, creating a studio, you help uh, stimulate, mentor others to continue some of the work that you were doing. That's at least how I interpreted it. I hope I didn't get that completely wrong. So the funny story is that we have these two buildings. This is building Concordia. We talked about it yesterday, how to get the servers from one building to work in the other building, and how do you build a system where the systems can talk? And we were walking between the buildings, and my colleague says, well, you know, we transfers in between. They should figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> you could just throw cables over our roof. It'll be fine. 
But the point is, is like, that's what you do, right? (laughs) Right? You're connecting people. Um, So I was walking across the street in Venice and Lorene Powell Jobs, she has many ventures. Um, She was married to Steve Jobs. She started Emerson Collective. She approached me to take what I do and expand on it. So rather than just making my own movies, which is what I've done for 25 years, she said, how do you amplify that? So we built a studio with executives to develop and produce great movies and fiction. And inside that, we have a very well-funded fellowship program to develop and promote diverse filmmakers. So diversity defined by all backgrounds. And so that happens inside the studio. And so it's, it's sort of an ambitious, hippie adventure. Is it working? In some ways, yes. In some ways, maybe. So one of our fellows made a film that was called Time, which was nominated for Academy Award last year. Uh, Amazon put it out. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. From one of our fellows, Garrett Bradley. And she's she's now become one of the great, most promising directors out there. We made this film called Boy State, which is incredible. We have a film out now called um, Summer of Souls, like Quest Love directed. It's about this concert in Harlem. People are raving about it. It's winning lots of awards. And on and on and on. So we're making lots of great stuff. How to make it financially, I call it sustainable. The motive is not making a cent for anybody. The motive is just not to lose too much money. That's the maybe part. The process of you selecting movies again, of you selecting uh, fellowships, how do you go through that process? Who's involved? So there's a woman named Roddy Taylor who used to work at Sundance. She runs the fellowship program. She's looking for the best next talent and who to bring to me. And then I meet the filmmakers and we decide together. Okay. The wonderful part about it is, is that there's other programs that do similar things, but the fellows are in a studio that's making stuff. So if you're, if you want to learn how to be a teacher, you're learning how to be a teacher in a school. Filmmakers are here making films with us, which is pretty exciting. And then I have executives that are finding films and developing films and making films. There's 24 people here making the studio run. Wow. Yeah. So when we started the conversation, we were talking about your dad and how influential he was. You probably, knowing you, wouldn't say you are, but you are. What are you going to pass on to the next generation of filmmakers or or something else? Maybe it's not film. Maybe the future you feel is somewhere completely different. But. I mean, my father taught me things, but more than that, he loved me and made me feel like I was special and talented. And there's nothing like that in the world. Um, I'm now 58. It's different than being 50. At 58, you start to feel like, oh, there's many more years behind me than ahead of me. And I've been so lucky. I feel like I'm talented, but I feel like there's also thousands of people as talented as me who didn't have my opportunities. So if I could help those talented people have the opportunities I have, I can't love them all the way my father loved me, 
I can love them a little bit, but I can also try to shower them with the kind of confidence that he gave me. Yeah. It might be one or two people, you know, that would, that would be special. An inconvenient truth. And you know, my name is Malala and Waiting for Superman, I think were, you know, inspirational films. And I think you, you helped educate people. And when it comes to climate change, some of these bigger issues, you know, I think that's the, actually the most you can expect from the work. Yeah. From the work you're going to do going forward, what, what would you like people to do or learn or take away from your work? I think these are troubling times. I think we're as divided as ever. <laughs> um, I believe that storytelling can bring people together. I've seen it happen. That people who disagree wildly on something, when they see a story that inspires them, their heart opens up and they, they become human again. I'm hopeful that storytelling can be and the work that I do can be part of bringing people back together. And that's so simple, but it's so fundamentally difficult. And I've, I've seen it happen with some of my movies. Theater by theater. I'd love to do that again. And that's our episode for today. Huge thank you to Davis Guggenheim for allowing us to share his story Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is the amazing Rachel Swaby with editing from Audrey No and Elise Hugh and sound engineering by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Meritons. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you're enjoying the show, please do follow, rate, and leave us a review. It makes all the difference. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. We'll see you in the new year.